Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is from the Mass in B minor, BWV 232, from the Quisedes movement. In Bach's later life, he compiled a giant collection of pieces and rearranged and reworked and reorchestrated stuff altogether to form a setting of the Latin Mass, which is about two hours long. It is a gigantic masterwork called the Mass in B minor. We have covered a few parts of it in past episodes of this podcast, but it's really strange on first glance that it would be something he would do at all because he was Protestant. So using the mass in this way was, is we think of now more Catholic thing. The composers of long, long ago would write music to be used every week in the Latin mass. And that's why they composed music to the parts that were always the same every week. Those were called the ordinary. And then there were parts that changed every week, like maybe there was just a piece of, of the Bible being read that was different each week, like a scripture reading. That would have been called the proper. And most of the musical settings we have from the, that time are from the ordinary, because if, you if you're gonna get the most bang for your buck, you were gonna write something that's, that got used every week or could be used any week. That was practical music uh, for church services, basically. And Bach followed the same format, except Bach's music is way longer and divided into way more parts. But the general structure is the same. First, you have what's called a Kyrie. This part is, in, is the only part that's in Greek and not Latin. And it starts with, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And it's that, it's that part. Then there's the Gloria. The Gloria is a Latin hymn or like a poem, like poetic words. It starts with glory to God in the highest, like what the angels say in, in um, the birth of Christ. And it goes on, we praise you, we bless you. And it goes on and uh, a few lines longer. And we covered the first two movements of that uh, back in season one, episode 32 and 33. And at this point, two of the mass ordinary parts are done. There's five total. The third part is called the credo or the creed. This is sometimes marked as symbolum nicenium, that's Nicene creed. This is um, the I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, so on and so forth. This is what would be spoken or sung in church. And that we also covered the first movement of that, which is the I believe in one God part, right? Last uh, season. That was episode 23. 
yeah, while that would take maybe a minute to say the whole thing, or a couple of minutes to sing a setting of the entire credo by a lot of composers, Bach is so spread out here that he set just that very first line, not even sentence, but first line, into its own movement, which we have covered. And it's really something. Then, that's, that's the longest part, and it's basically the outline of the Christian belief. Then you've got the Sanctus, which means holy. And this is the part of the service that says, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And you've got We've got some parts coming up next, like Hosanna in the Highest. These are all parts that are just like within the church service. Finally, there is an Agnus Dei at the end that says, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. It says it um, repeats that a couple of times, and that's basically it. but Bach makes something of each of these phrases throughout the whole thing, and that's why it's so long. And the whole thing is a little strange, too, because he wasn't Catholic. But it it does make me remember something that I learned in, in a history class, which is when we think of, like, Protestants, we think of, like, people who were historically trying to do not what the Catholics did at the time. But it took a long time. They were still doing Latin stuff. It wasn't like it was completely, it wasn't just like complete binary system of like we sing Latin in church or we don't. Or right. like in, a, in, in Germany in this time period or in, in the region that would eventually become Germany present day, that is also the case. There was probably pockets of places where they were really strict Protestants and trying really hard to use their own vernacular tongue in church which was revolutionary at the time for some of them. And then other places where it was much looser and they were still doing older stuff and singing in Latin. So the fact that Bach would try to do something like this at all is really interesting. Right, and the fact that he compiled it later in his life. You know, I mean, it meant that I think he he, he sort of saw the esteemed quality of a Latin mass as something, you know, something of high quality to be attained even though most of his works, you know, are in German and set with German texts by German librettists, this was important to him clearly to have this this more old-fashioned Latin text. Yeah, he did actually steal from himself over his many years of German cantatas right. to rewrite them, to put new text in them, to make them Latin. is really interesting right but you could also be argued that it's not like he was latinizing that old music but instead he was just picking the stuff he really loved that he'd already written for these cantatas to put it into this you know masterwork yeah it is like the director von Beethoven says in one of his interviews it's a compilation of it's Bach's own 
personal compilation of what he thought was his best choral music and vocal solo music. It's like Bach's greatest hits. It is like Bach's greatest hits. It's but like if someone... specifically choral greatest because he's got so <laughs> <Yeah>. much others. <laughs> it's like it's like if there was a greatest hits album of a band, except it was all in a different language. <laughs> yeah, which That'd I be bet weird. that could be a thing that probably does happen. Yeah, maybe. Except it's not like that because that would be easier to produce than what this is because he had to rewrite a lot of this stuff and and some of this stuff is new. He didn't. This isn't sure. all just parodies of earlier stuff. So we talked about this a little bit in the Bachtoberfest finale of season one, that we've gotten some really wonderful fan emails, basically. And one of them was by a listener by the name of Will, who suggested a moment. And we're doing that moment now. Will says that in the Mass in B minor, there is an aria within the Gloria section, Quisedes is what the title of this aria is. It is an alto aria, and in his words, something about the color of the instrument or the melody that is otherworldly, and the alto, he sent, he exclaims, it's, it's so great. And I think, um, Alex, I think we kind of latched on to his, his description of the instrument or the melody as otherworldly. Yeah. The instrument being used in this aria, the solo instrument, is the oboe d'amore. And we talked about this one other time on this podcast. It is not a modern oboe. It's a bit lower and sweeter. recordings of this movement with an alto soloist, a female singer, low in the range of her voice. But the Netherlands Bach Society, as they almost always do, they use countertenors for this job. So they have men singing high on these alto parts. They have male altos. It's a different vocal color. It's very interesting. And the combination of it with the oboe de Moor is really captivating. Yeah, I'm just going to do a little bit of editorializing. I'm just going to guess on Will's um, use of the word otherworldly. But I think that's probably why it sounds otherworldly to him. And I, I would agree. It's like, it doesn't quite sound like an oboe. It sounds a little lower, more nasal, a little alien. And then the alto singer 
having that more masculine tone but a higher range of a male voice instead of us hearing the female alto voice like we might be more used to. I think the combination of both of those things gives it that otherworldly feel. Yeah, you turn on if you turn on a classical radio station, the most likely actual timbre you're going to hear, like the literal sound, is that of a symphony orchestra, and it's very certain. It's very specific. It's like 1800s, you know, early 1800s, late 1700s. Strings, horns, flutes, real, real straight-ahead stuff. Mo more modern, probably more modern woodwinds that you're hearing. So, just the sound alone of parts of the Mass in B minor are enough to make me just think like, oh, it's so interestingly different than what we just end up hearing all the time when we think of classical music. Because I agree. it's just so timbrally varied. Yeah, um, that's a good point. And some people might scoff at this comparison, but I think that a lot of modern actual top 40 pop hits have a lot more interesting timbral color than the average thing you hear on a classical station. I'm not talking about the rest of the musical complexity, of course. I'm just talking about timbral color. I think you get a lot of interesting timbral color in music production nowadays and has that's been that way since at least the 80s, but before that too. But like if you listen to something by like the Talking Heads or something, right? From mm -hmm. the 80s. There can be a lot of interesting effects going on in there, musical timbral color stuff, even if the like sense of counterpoint or whatever is far removed from something as complex as Bach. But that might be the reason that music sticks with people. Whereas classical music, it might be because of the more intricate, complex things about the music. Yeah, harmony. But, yeah, harmony. And and but here what we have progression. is both, right? And this is why this really appeals to me, right? Yeah. This interesting color combined with the obvious high quality of of you know musical complexity that we always have come to expect from Bach. So Alex, I have a a bit of a like a soapbox about this because I've noticed being in in grad school for a while and going to a lot of concerts and hearing a lot of excellent music being performed sometimes by students, sometimes by more um, seasoned professionals or faculty or something. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times You'll go to a concert of like chamber music or something, or I won't say orchestra because there's a lot of t colors inherently in it, but like something small, like a string quartet or something like that, or vo voice and piano, something. And what will hit me, no matter the style, almost almost no matter the genre or style or time period that the music was written in, is that 85% of these concerts, I get what I have called, what I have named... Uh, timbral fatigue and it happens within like the first 10 seconds of the concert and what it is it's the unfortunate realization that the, the sound color the tone color of all of the music that's going to hit my ears from this for the next hour is going to be mostly the same yeah and you're going to have to find your interest in everything else right in yeah. the interesting rhythms melodies and harmonies which could be really fascinating but yeah you're but not we're spoiled get now we're spoiled in the present day with electronic music that can make anything timbrely um, um, virtually plus a lot of invent inventions over the last hundred years of acoustic instruments and we have so much now and we have access to so many different kinds of sounds that that's the, i think the weakness of the classical chamber concert these days where it's like oh yeah well okay it's going to sound like a string quartet for the yeah for the and it's not to say that a string quartet has to sound like that either 
it's entirely up to the job of the contemporary composer to fix that problem. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> I don't and know. <laughs> it is also something to be said for being live. Even hearing an uninteresting timbral color live is better than hearing it in a recording. Yeah. But it's interesting, Christian, that you used the word virtually when you were saying, um, you know, nowadays we can make any timbre virtually, you said. Literally, Literally virtually. Literally virtually, mm-hmm. right? Right. And that is kind of the problem in a way, because if it was real and if you were hearing it live, it would help a lot. It would go a long way to make it more interesting. Live is, yeah, it, it's better. And that's why I'm always striving to hear or create something that is not timbrally fatiguing. You know, it has like a mm-hmm. level of variety that, I mean, I did my dissertation on something on on this exact topic, not my gripe about timbral fatigue, yeah. but about timbre, about a specific kind of timbre, but that's a topic for another day. But that's why this Quisetes aria is otherworldly, because it is such a stunningly strange timbre, those two instruments together, the, the sound of the two, of the voice and the oboe de mor. And yeah. it's not just them, to get into the music a bit. It's not just the fact that these two instruments or these two sounds are employed. It's what they do. The genius stroke by Bach here is that they are not always together nor are they always separate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the oboe and the voice hook together for a few notes, Mm -hmm. and then they come off. Sometimes they call and response, answer each other, but not quite. We were just looking at one small moment here where Bach wrote one of the notes different in the answer than the call. The, the voice has the C sharp there, and then it's answered by an oboe phrase, same phrase except for the C is brought down to C natural. Really interesting. It's written that way. It's not an ornament that they added. Sometimes they are almost together, but not quite. The only words that are being set in this entire movement, because the Mass in D minor is so spread out, some of the movements are only just like one sentence. It is, who sits at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. The who is Jesus, in this case. You'd know this by context if you're listening to the whole thing, of course. There's basically two thoughts being expressed here. There's, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, comma, have mercy on us. And the first line is, Quisedes a dexteram patris, who sits at the right hand of the Father. The second line is, Miserere nobis, have mercy on us. And whenever composers get to that miserere section, they really like to sort of give it some, some edge because it's almost like, I mean, the word almost sounds like miserable. You know, it's, yeah, it's misery. Like, etymology is the same and that it's saying have mercy so it's usually a, a moment for some intense passion and sort of is here as well and there's some analogies you could kind of stretch here but i think it could be that there is um this otherworldly to use will's word this otherworldly sound is justified because we're talking about an otherworldly place we're talking about 
a heavenly place where there is God, and then there's also Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. And so there's kind of two characters there, and they are they are the same, but they are not the same, and that's part of the, the mystery there. So maybe that's why there's an oboe and a voice here that share a range and right. share notes, yeah. but don't always line up together. There have been sillier theories proposed yeah, by no, Bach's music college. So I think that's probably a pretty common theory. Yeah. So that's not even, that's, I don't even think that's a stretch. No, it's not. And the fact that we don't know kind of makes it a, all the more charming to me. You know, it's just one of those, it's one of those things that you can, you can take with you in this piece if you want. Knowing that, or not knowing that Bach intended that, it makes it your own if you want it to be your own theory, you know. And that's the great thing about art. I mean, even if the composer didn't intend that, it could still mean that to you, right? Art is different than, than uh, theology in that way. I'm sure Bach would, would have agreed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of being a set of stated facts or a set of s- stated confessions, it's like this can mean something a little bit different to each person musically. Yeah, even music, that like the credo section that literally says, I believe in one God, and then it l- goes on to list some very specific things about the Christian faith. Yeah, And then this Gloria section, which does the same kind of thing, but in a more condensed way, even that has so much musical variety within it that can evoke so many different analogies. It's really interesting. And this may be stretching it, but you know, there's those little violin um, responses too. Mm. Maybe that's like the the little human response or something. It always sounds very echoey and off to the side and not like kind of in the background and basically just drowned out by the the beauty of everything else that's going on, right? As if humans are, you know, are in our own little song in the background. That's yeah. just my own little thing. <laughs> or maybe... <laughs> Probably not intended. Maybe also, or maybe instead, it's since the words are coming from a first-person perspective that's clearly a human it's talking, mm-hmm. who sits at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. In other words, please have mercy on us, Jesus, coming from me, a person. So maybe it's us, and there are different aspects of humanity. One of them is the one who's actually speaking. The instrumental one is more of a thought-based thing or something. And then you've got, like you said, Alex, these other little tiny echoes, these little tiny string echoes that happen as well. And we are not always united in the way we speak or think, but sometimes we line up and that's why this is disjunct sometimes, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be that. And it's also those little those little violin echoes, they always have an after the word patris or after an instrumental version of the same thing that the singer would have sung the, that word. So it's after the word father. So maybe just a little echo of, of praise to the father or something like that too. Yeah, and if you think if you're thinking to yourself, This is a little bit peppy for something saying have mercy on us. It's this triple meter dance type of deal. It's not incredibly languishing and sad, but that's because in context, we're just coming off of a deeply emotional and sad movement for the choir, which which has the words, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Who takes away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. 
still talking about Jesus, but Bach did choose that moment to be a lot more passionately expressive with the counterpoint and with, with his musical depiction. Yeah, that's some of my favorite stuff right there. And another really great example of Bach thinking large-scale work on this is the way, there's the key structure of this whole thing. It's, it's called Mass in B minor because it starts in B minor. That doesn't mean the whole thing is in B minor. It starts there, but then here, in that movement you just mentioned, Christian, the preceding movement, the Quitolis, it's like F sharp minor kind of, although it doesn't really stay in one place ever. It's all over the place. And then at the end, it lands on F sharp major to set up a dominant chord to the next movement. You really have to like do these back and forth. The other one doesn't end, you know, it just it goes right into this this one. Yeah, the credo was the same problem we we touched upon we did. that episode. It, it, it yeah, ends, it ends on the It dominant. does not end. It ends open. It doesn't really close at the end. And it's the same thing with this Quitolis movement yeah, which you goes know straight what? into the You're next right. One. I'm looking at the beginning of the Quitolis and it does it does start in B minor. And it comes off of a, a different duet, the Domini Deus, which ends there in B minor, but which kind of ends incomplete because it started in G. So it's he, he's clearly thinking all these things out long term so he knows how he's going to get to where he needs to go. And it's nice also, by the way, that the whole thing is in B minor. It's called the Mass in B minor. That's very famously true. But the beginning, it, it's called that because it starts in B minor. The beginning is the Kyrie, the very first thing that happens is Lord have mercy in Greek, not Latin. Now we have, again, Lord have mercy in the middle of the Gloria and Bach puts us back tonally in the same place for the same word. Mm -hmm. Which makes a lot of sense and was probably on purpose. And we know that Bach paid a lot of attention to the tonal structure of the whole thing. It's very obvious. And the, the number of movements in each section, that's another whole thing. It's all, he clearly thought it all out and it's nice, it's nice that so much thought was put into the whole thing. It's not just, it's not just that, it's not a Bach greatest hits, right? It's not an album of separate tracks is what you're saying. It's a rearrangement yeah. of a lot of things, yes, but it's so much more than that. So listeners, rather than explaining an entire moment now you've already expected what the actual smaller moment within the quisades aria is going to be so there'll be a musical phrase which features a very beautiful dialogue half dialogue half together between the oboe and the voice you've heard it already as we've played parts of it throughout this episode and now here is that moment from the quisades aria If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Mass in B minor, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love it if you give us a rate and a review on whatever podcast service you're listening to us on. Alex, one of the things we like to do with this podcast is sometimes follow the church year 
seasons with things that Bach did during those times or things that thematically work. So right now, as this episode is being released, the church season is Lent. So we've just heard a part of the Mass in B minor that suits that theme of asking Jesus for mercy. But some of the listeners might be guessing that one of the things we, you would do in Lent from Bach would be the Passions. And that's what we're, that's what we're gonna do. So Alex, what will we be talking about next week? We will be returning to the St. Matthew Passion for a discussion about one of my favorite arias, the soprano aria, Aus Liebe. Until next time, enjoy those moments.